Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 378, A Witch's Bat Mitzvah. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are back in our series of episodes exploring the B-Mitzvah, jumping off from the 100th anniversary of the very first Bat Mitzvah in the United States. We are exploring now what is happening with this ritual, what might happen with this ritual in the future, as perhaps a window into a larger set of possibilities for how Judaism might be evolving. We thought it would be really interesting to talk to an author of a recent book that has as its central focus a B-mitzvah. In this particular case, that person is also a witch. Our guest today, Laurel Snyder, is the author of many books, including the most recent book, which is just coming out, called The Witch of Woodland. An ongoing theme of our podcast has been the importance of fiction, especially fiction for children and young adults, in shaping Jewish life. And we think that reading this kind of book could be just as important to the experience of middle schoolers marking their bi mitzvah as perhaps the ceremonies themselves might be. Before we introduce our guest, just wanted to let you know about an upcoming event, our annual Shavuot Live Gathering. We've done this every year for the last few years, where we have basically a 24-hour gathering online to mark the holiday of Shavuot, where there is a tradition of staying up all night to study the Torah, to sort of remember and reenact the experience of receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. And we have expanded that idea in all kinds of ways, thinking about in our time, maybe it's less about reenacting the giving of the Torah back then in terms of studying the Torah that has been the traditional Torah, and more thinking about the Torah of the future, and not only doing that over a night, but doing that over an entire 24-hour period. You don't have to come for the whole 24 hours, very few people do, but many people come for six, seven, eight, ten hours. You could come for one hour or you could come for 24 hours, whatever you want. This event begins on Friday, May 26th at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time. And it ends on Saturday, May 27th at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time. We have an incredible lineup. Every hour is another presenter. There are presentations, conversations. You can look at everything. You can find out all about this event at judaismunbound.com slash Shavuot. That's S-H-A-V-U-O-T. And we are really excited to learn with you. In past years, we have had 600, 800, however many, that kind of order of magnitude, people that have joined us in this event over the course of the 24 hours. We're excited to continue that tradition, and we hope that you will join us. So again, to get all the details, that's judaismunbound.com slash Shavuot. And now, just a few words of introduction for our guest today. As I mentioned, Laurel Snyder is the author of The Witch of Woodland, which talks about a Jewish witch's bat mitzvah. That's what we're going to be talking about today. In addition to that book, 
Laurel Snyder is the author of seven other books for middle grade readers, including Orphan Island and Bigger Than a Breadbox. She is also the author of a number of picture books for younger children, including Baxter, the pig who wanted to be kosher. She is also a published poet with two books of poetry. She is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and she has also written nonfiction, including editing an anthology called Half-Life, Jewish Tales from Interfaith Homes. Laurel Snyder has been an occasional commentator on NPR's All Things Considered, and she currently teaches in writing programs at Hamlin University and Emory University. Laurel Snyder, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. I'm so excited to be here. So in the introduction to your book, you write that you have written, I think this is your eighth book for middle grade readers. I assume every book takes a while to write, a year or more. And so you've spent many years writing middle grade reader books, but this is the first one that really has a Jewish theme. And I just wanted to start by asking you what was the thought process of doing that? I guess I'm interested more generally, how do middle grade reader book writers decide what to write about? But in this particular case, why did you find that this was the time to write a book on a Jewish theme? So it's a really big, long story that starts about 20 years ago. Um, My first novel was sort of an accident. I'm a poet by training, and I went through graduate school assuming that I was going to be an academic poet. And then at some point, I sort of started messing around with children's books. And that was it was a very organic process. Like, I wasn't thinking about publishing. I didn't know anything about this world. I really just started telling myself a bedtime story. And that became my first novel. And that book eventually got published, though it took like eight years. And then I went on a podcast called The Book of Life, and the host, Heidi, asked me this question, which was why I hadn't included any Jewish content in the book. And it hadn't even occurred to me until that moment that what had happened was, in my head, children's books aren't Jewish. I had grown up with a world of children's books, and none of them really, with the exception of like Zlata the Goat and the All of a Kind family, none of them were Jewish. And so I just sort of, in my head, like, children's books aren't Jewish. And that was, I had enough time to change at the very last minute. My second book, I like changed the family's name to make them the Levies to to add some little tiny bit of Jewish, but it was literally just like slapping a bagel in the corner, you know, like, like let's add some Jewish something. Um, And that was sort of the beginning of this process for me. And, and from there, it sort of has crept up. So each book has a little tiny squeak more uh, in bigger than a bread box. I added in like a tiny moment where she's from an intermarried family and she's sitting in a classroom thinking about the fact that there's another Jewish kid in the class, but she's not really Jewish. And so each book has had just like a little bit more Jewish character, like a little bit more of an awareness of what it means to be Jewish. But I never, and then with Orphan Island, I have this novel, Orphan Island, that has lots of strange little details in it, sort of Easter eggs. Um, Passover eggs. (laughs) Passover eggs. There's like, there's like, like the kids all have to come to the beach when three stars are in the sky. And like, there's all of these like little bits of Jewish stuff in them, but it's never called out. Like, I don't know why it was always just sort of sprinkling it in, sprinkling it in. I think some piece of me felt like my Jewish experience isn't normative enough to be received by the Jewish world as a Jewish story. That said, like, I'm Jewish. I'm raising Jewish kids. I grew up in a Jewish home. I worked for Hillel. I lived in Israel. I taught Hebrew school. Like, I did all these things. And yet I still felt like I had a sort of imposter syndrome around it. 
And then recently, it just began to feel like we need those stories specifically. I mean, and this is what your podcast is all about, like that we need to loosen our sense of the limitations of Judaism and sort of keep ourselves from holding people out or not allowing people to voice their own experience of what it means to be Jewish. And so it felt like the best thing I could do was pour my actual self and my actual life into a Jewish story without apology. And I'm very fortunate that I've been in this business long enough that I have an editor that trusts me and who I trust. And we were able to sort of make that deal together. But I think it would be hard to do something like this as a first book. You said a little while ago that we need more stories like this. And I was curious who the we in that sentence was. When you write a book like this, do you think my readers are probably going to be Jewish, but Jewish kids buy a lot of books, so it's okay. We're still going to sell a lot of books. Or do you say, no, 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 that is never the way that you think about a book like this. This is a book for anybody. But then what is it that you imagine somebody who's not Jewish gets out of a book when the character is so obviously Jewish? Is that problematic or is that actually good for this kind of writing? Because there's an expectation that the characters have some kind of clear identity. When I sit down to write a book, my reader is the one kid I think most needs this book. And I try really, really hard not to think about market, not to think about numbers, not to think about sales, not to think about whether we can sell enough copies to get the next book deal. I try really hard to remember that like the books that I loved best were often books that nobody else had read that I knew. The kids who desperately need a friend <laughs> in a book are not representative of the larger population necessarily. The hope is that if you tell a specific story in the details and you do it in a really rich human way, that other people will respond to it because in the personal, there are the, the sort of universal. But I don't think about like the Jewish market, or I try not to, or the girls versus boys reading, or what age category it's going to fall into. I try not to do that. I think about one specific reader, and basically she's me when I was 12 or 10 or six or whatever. <laughs> and then I just hope that other people will come because it's a good story. I think there's a value in like pushing against the market forces with something like this. And I think part of that is that I am writing for the Jewish reader. Like I want the Jewish kid out there who doesn't feel seen or doesn't feel represented in literature to have an example of like, well, not everybody's the same, that I'm fighting the monolith. And also I want non-Jewish readers to see something besides a shtetl or the Lower East Side or the Holocaust in a book for children. And it feels so often like, like I know that this book would be likelier to reach a wider Jewish audience if it were set in Poland in 1942. <laughs> but this is the story we don't have. And so it feels important that I'm telling that story. I'm going to break the fourth wall for a second on our process as a podcast. Like, I saw that you were writing a new book. Um, I know some of your other work. It's been influential for me. But I mostly I was like, oh, cool, young adult or middle grade book that's all about Jewish magic. That was the general sense. Like I hadn't read it yet. I didn't know all the ins and outs, mm -hmm. but I was like, this looks cool. And more than that, it feels really deeply needed, um, not just for the one reader that might resonate most with it. I love that framework. And honestly, I might adopt it for our own podcast in terms mm. of how we think of our audience. But I look around in Jewish life, people want Jewish magic. People are excited at frameworks of Jew witchcraft. Yep. You know, we've got a class in the Anyashiva right now all about ways that witchcraft has played a role even within Judaism. People think it's like external or banned. It's not so much. Although also, I mean, it's complicated. But 
What's so interesting, though, is that I feel like all these Jews out there that want to talk witchcraft, they're all in a similar situation to you, which is they think that that interest, well, that's not really my my Jewish interest. Like, I, I might right. be into magic generally. There, I mean, there's all sorts of interesting stuff we could go into about, like, scholarship about this and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And we've yep. talked about this with Katsira Lesser, who's teaching that course. Like, there's a reason that a lot of folks are really interested in this. And at the end of the day... It's fun when Jewish is wacky. Yep. It's fun when Jewish surprises you and isn't just the shtetl and isn't just the Lower East Side. Like, it's not that I'm bored of those narratives. It's not that they shouldn't exist. But I think people out there believe that what Jews want is a Judaism that is familiar. Yep. And what I find is that a lot of the people that are most jazzed about doing Jewish stuff, they want a Judaism that surprises them. And you created a novel that is deeply Jewish and also deeply Jewish in ways that are going to surprise a lot of the readers. So I guess I'm curious about the step from I'm going to write a book that has more Jewish content to specifically it's going to be Jewish content filtered through. I mean, I don't want to spoil too much, so I'm trying. Yeah. Not to, but like <laughs> Jewish mystical creatures mm -hmm. and Jewish magic and spells and a girl who's having a bat mitzvah. How did that happen? So I guess I started this book came together very differently than they usually do. I usually have a sense of real sense of plot before I begin writing. What I knew was that Zippy, the main character, was going to be telling us her story. I knew that I wanted to put this in her mouth. And so- Sipora Chava McConnell is her full name that we'll yes, come back Sipora to later. Sipora Chava McConnell. <laughs> that she was going to be writing this for us. This is her process of discovering how to be a writer and and in that in doing so, how to have a voice, right? Um, and so that was sort of where I began. And I knew that it was going to be her bat mitzvah. And partly that was just the function of my son was entering that process himself. And so I thought, well, this will be great. Like, I'll go to his meetings and practices and drop him off at class and I'll steal the details of his experience for Zippy. So there was a sort of function to that. Um, I was I have two kids who are very close in age. And so I was in between two bar mitzvahs at that time. And then I think I stumbled upon Mishpatim. The section of Exodus where there's a line that just very briefly mentions a witch. So I knew that I wanted that to be her Torah portion. So then that was part of it was that we were sort of reorganizing the calendar to get her there. But the other piece of the story is that when I was a kid, I believed very deeply in magic. It really was my safe place, a belief in fairies and unicorns and, and just all of that was really my belief system. As that was happening, there was an older girl at my school who approached my best friend and I and told us that she was a witch and that she would apprentice us. Whoa. And I realize now that she ripped it from a couple of other children's books. Like now I know that she told that from E.L. Konigsberg. <laughs> and so we like had costumes and secret names and spells that she taught us and collections, things like service. It was sort of like being hazed for a sorority or something. Um, it was not actually ultimately a good experience. And I think, I don't know, I have odd memories about that. But I feel like there was something about that happening where it's like at the same time that I myself was becoming bat mitzvah, I was also going through this experience with this girl at my school without even realizing it. those things then sort of layered together. And I gave Zippy my belief in magic and I gave Zippy my insecurities and I gave Zippy my sort of complex intermarried Jewish urban identity. You know, I sort of gave her all these pieces of my life. I'm actually glad you used the word hazing. I've been using the word hazing in talking about 
this whole unit we're in the in the midst of on bat mitzvah and on b mitzvah mm-hmm. more broadly, because I actually think that, and I'm not making a joke. I think that by most definitions of what hazing is, the process of becoming b mitzvah is it. Yep. Like you are subjecting a set of people, some of whom are fine with doing a bunch of rituals, others of whom don't really want to do it. You're you're subjecting them to it. You're having them do tasks that are very scary yep. for large portions of our society, especially large portions of 12 and 13-year-olds. Public speaking, singing, wrestling with really challenging ancient texts. I mean, like- that's In a language not, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, trying to learn a language that you've probably not encountered much. I mean, I do actually think that there's an argument that it is at least adjacent to hazing. Now, obviously, I'm not saying we should- banish all b-mitzvahs because it's like hazing. I I do oppose hazing, of course. But your book is aware of how hard this process is for a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old to experience. Talk to us about the bat mitzvah side. What were you seeking to do there? And also, I'm going to ask a question that I hope isn't spoiling too much. Like, is the bat mitzvah in the book the actual ceremony that takes place? Or is the bat mitzvah the entire book, the entire process that Zippy experiences? So I'm going to take the last part of your question first and say that I'm a big believer that a writer begins a book and a reader finishes it, right? And that any and some of my books have very ambiguous endings where you really don't know what happens at the end. For me, uh, Zippy has several bat mitzvahs happening simultaneously. And some of those, there are sort of the book operates on a very personal level with her relationship with her best friend and the idea of getting older and sort of becoming a teenager. It operates on the level of becoming a writer. It operates on the level of becoming sort of questioning and doubting and believing in something that nobody else believes in and committing to that or not committing to that. It navigates the Jewish piece. There's sort of all these different layers. And I would like to think that ideally those things all come together in a moment in her life or a week in her life or a year in her life, that they come together. Ideally in our lives, that's what happens when we go through a big transition and you win the big football game or whatever. You have a really Hmm. meaningful conversation with your parents that you hadn't been willing to have. And you ask the person you like out on a date. And that, like (laughs) in a perfect world, that's what makes a really good climax of a book, a really good climax, right? Is that you're bringing the internal and the external narratives together. I think Zippy would say that her bat mitzvah is committing to believing in the things she believes in and not letting other people sort of tell her who to be. And my my bat mitzvah was unpleasant, honestly. And maybe that's part of what I'm writing out of is I gave myself a second bat mitzvah. Like, you know, I did it over. Um, and I did it over through my children whose experiences were very different than mine. And I did it in the book. I'm hoping to launch a like an online book club for kids who are not in a large Jewish, like, like, like for the kids who are the only kid in the class kind of Jewish kids, like a Jewish book club for kids who maybe don't have a community. But I grew up in a larger form congregation that was not a good fit for our family in suburban Baltimore. But I grew up in a very different neighborhood and far away from all of that and didn't go to school with any of those kids and didn't know any of them outside of Hebrew school where I was not particularly successful socially. (laughs) So for me, the bat mitzvah process was very much checking boxes and getting my piece of paper signed that said that I went to Shabbat services so that I could, you know, get my 12 requirements or whatever. And my parents were intermarried. And so my mom at that point, even in the reform movement, didn't have any place in the process. The, I mean, if I have a stark memory of my bat mitzvah, it's of my mom 
standing in an outfit that she was fancier than anything she'd ever owned, as far as I could tell, standing at the back of the synagogue, kind of staring at me up on the bima, and just realizing like she didn't get to be a part. And I didn't know that I wanted to be a part. (laughs) It's funny because I didn't ultimately want Zippy's bat mitzvah to be a negative experience for her. I wanted to give her something more meaningful than what I had had. I mean, that's a big part of why we write books is to sort of revise our own stories, right? So something in the way that you were just describing this made me wonder again, this question of who the we is that needs this book. Because I'm, and I'm wondering, does somebody read a book like this at the age of 11, let's say, and then they are oriented towards thinking about their be mitzvah in a different way. And so when it comes up, they're more positive about it or they have another perspective. Or does somebody read it when they're 12 and a half and their be mitzvah is coming up soon and this is some kind of like last minute intervention? Or does somebody read it when they're 14 and it helps them recover from a bad experience? Or does somebody read it when they're 45 And that was actually the thing as you were talking, I was wondering, like, maybe we should be pushing that adults should be reading this book (laughs) because maybe there's something that's really needed. Maybe it's too hard or we're not at a place yet in the evolution of Jewish practice where we can really fix the B mitzvah, but at least we can help people recover from it Um, down the road and not feel like that somehow made them a bad Jew, that they didn't have the B mitzvah that they imagine is the right kind of B mitzvah. Yeah, I think... When I started working on this book, and then at some point in that process, I asked my son, who was supposed to have his bar mitzvah June of 2020, if he believed in God. And he looked at me, and we have a lot of big conversations in this house. He looked at me and he said, does anybody know for sure that they believe in God? Like he couldn't imagine that feeling of security or assurance. And that was a big informing thing for the book, was this realization that I was like, oh, of course that's how he feels. Of course, that's how vast numbers of kids growing up in contemporary secular society feel. Most Jewish kids I know are not living their lives by the mitzvot. If there's a missing piece in the mitzvah conversation, or our synagogue calls them Brit mitzvahs, it's that there are questions and conversations we're not having that kids should get to investigate, not like, what do you want your mitzvah project to be? Or can you write a you know, three-page devar out of your portion, but like, what would it mean for you to have a significant religious experience? And I had this whole theory that the reason Jews can sort of not have these conversations is because we do all of our praying in a language we don't understand. So we like actually just mm-hmm. say all these words and it's very comfortable because I don't know what I just said most of the time. I mean, sometimes I do and sometimes I'm following along, but when I do often, I'm like, well, I don't think that. Like if I was asked to follow through the like liturgy at the high holidays and sign like in signature after every line, I wouldn't be able to do that. And I just feel like the fact that we have this like because we don't actually get into it a lot of the time for a lot of kids, we just don't even have that conversation. And I don't even remember if this made it into the last pass, but there was a scene in the book. We had to cut a lot at the end. And there was a scene in the book where Zippy basically at the beginning Zippy says to the rabbi, like, I feel like I don't like I'm not Jewish, basically. And he was like, well, if we begin with the assumption that you are Jewish because you're here and you're a part of this community, then whatever you believe is, in fact, a Jewish belief. It is the belief of a Jewish person. And she says to the rabbi, that feels cheaty. And he says a lot of people would probably agree with that. But I don't think it's cheaty. So I'm not going to let the name of our 
protagonist slide. I mentioned it before. I said it fully. Tsipora Chava McConnell. This mm-hmm. is a top tier protagonist name for a book like this. <laughs> to go through the things that cr- crossed my mind with this name. First off, Tsipora is her first name and she goes by Zippy. Tsipora mm-hmm. is, of course, not the name of a Jewish slash Israelite character. Sipora is the name of one of the more prominent characters in the Torah who is not an Israelite. She's married to Moses. So Sipora is the first name. Chava is also not the name of a Jew. Chava Mm -hmm. is Eve, the first woman. And so she actually has two names that are deeply Jewishly coded, but are not actually Jewish characters. Now, everybody in the Torah is not Jewish. I mean, it's pre-Jewish. It's Israelites, whatever. But like, even they're not Israelite. Um, and then we have McConnell. And so mm-hmm. at first glance, the McConnell part, a reader could assume, oh, so there's a Jewish mother and a not Jewish father. But her father is Jewish, but he's Jewish through his mother. So he has Correct. one Jewish parent and one not Jewish parent. And there's actually a beautiful scene in the book where you get to see the father's relationship to Judaism. And he like dusts off an old copy of the the Torah that he hasn't really looked at in a while. And you're seeing him like get confused and enlivened through this text at the same time Zippy is. I, I, it was really powerful to me to see that name and then notice certain things because it's so blatant. It's so like, let's choose Irish sounding name and throw it with Chava and Sipora. Like, talk to us about that. And I guess it doesn't have to just be about the name, but about the, the way you crafted the Jewish identities in this book. Names are important in Judaism, right? Like this is what we, we get into this stuff. So I wanted her to be from an intermarried family because it would be inauthentic for my Jewish, like it it would feel wrong to me to try to tell a Jewish story from an intermarried family. That would feel unfamiliar to me. But I also didn't want the intermarriage to be her issue. It was my issue when I was a kid. And if I had tried to write a book out of that set of emotions, I would have been writing a book that was 40 years in the past. Where the Jewish community was with regard to intermarriage, what the experience of having this, like to go through about mitzvah when I was a kid was very different than what I watched my kids go through. Ultimately, I was like, okay, so one of her grandparents is going to be not Jewish. She's going to have the the remnants of some sense of like her father grew up in an intermarried family. He's of my generation. And she's got a grandfather who like sings Christmas carols and celebrates Christmas and stuff like that. So I wanted to give her the trappings of that without giving her the trauma of a really difficult intermarried childhood experience which meant that I wanted her father to be matrilineal Jewish, which meant that I got to take the name. So it was sort of this perfect, and what you said about Chava and Sipor, nobody else is caught, that that was the goal, was like the things in the name that feel or appear on the surface to be not Jewish, which is McConnell, is in fact a Jewish name. Her father is Jewish. Her father gave her that name. We, the outsiders, might recognize it as Irish or Scottish, but that doesn't mean it's not Jewish. It's meaningfully Jewish for that family, right? And Sipora and Chava, these names that sound Jewish and feel Jewish to somebody who doesn't know better are in fact not the names of Jewish characters in the Torah. So it was sort of, it was a, it was a little trick, but I didn't know if anybody would get it. So thank you very much. <laughs> it does not surprise me that somebody who has the relationship to magic that you have also has the relationship to names being important that you have. There, there, And this comes through in Zippy. I mean, she is really into words 
and words creating reality. I mean, she I, again, I'm not really spoiling too much, but she no, yeah. she casts spells and she she believes that they work and it and it, indeed it seems that they do. She is a believer in the power of language and words. That comes through in English, it comes through in other languages, and then it comes through in her relationship to Jewish text. Here she is, you know, not somebody who knows Hebrew, not somebody who is deeply, somebody who didn't even go to most of the Sunday school series like some of the other kids. And she finds a specific word that she falls in love with and gains a deep interest in that's a Hebrew word. And right. so I guess I'd love to hear, because this ties to the magic piece that we haven't talked as much about yet. Like, mm-hmm. how does the power of language, the power of words play into this story and to the the Jewish side of it and generally the magic side of it? I just love language. Like it's, that's just my, that's my magical system. Right. And, and we can change the way we understand the world around us by changing the language. And we can convince people of things in persuasive ways that we wouldn't think we're cap- we were capable of by choosing the right words at the right moment. And for me as a kid, I think I did believe in magic and, and sort of language as true magic I, that I just hadn't figured it out yet. Right. That when I was a kid, I felt like there were spells. I just didn't know them yet. There were fairies. I just hadn't seen them yet. Um, and on some level, even my adult life, I sort of carry that with me. This this belief, not because I think somebody else necessarily has it figured out, but because I just believe the world is so infinite that ruling out the possibility of anything seems absurd to me. I think Zippy is it, she is a budding writer and she is writing her story. And so it makes a kind of sense to me that just as it was for me, what at 12 feels like she's looking for magic spells is also the experience of she is discovering the power of language just in general. She is discovering that asking a question the right way, talking to your parents in a certain tone of voice, you know, saying the right thing at the party can change your life. I mean, it really can cast a magic spell. And some of that is done in a more overt magical way. But a lot of the same moves are happening in the book, just in the way that she speaks to her peers or things she says at school or learns to talk to her parents differently. I also just think it's not an accident that we have have our brit mitzvah when we're that age, right? It is a magical age. We are going through an actual transformation, becoming different people, growing into creatures we didn't know we would be. I mean, that's just all part of that process of being that age. And that, that I think it's, as with so many things, I think Judaism is just really wise in tracking kind of psychological and evolutionary things and then finding a ritual to go with it. There's the bat mitzvah that happens on the bima, and then there's the bat mitzvah that happens between Zippy and B, and the bat mitzvah that happens between Zippy and Miriam, and the bat mitzvah that happens between Zippy and her mom. What I'm trying to think about is why that, your son, when he's asked, do you believe in God, will say, well, does anybody really believe in God? And yet so many kids that age do believe in magic, right? It feels like Judaism is doing something wrong. Like there's a lot of really mm-hmm. smart and great things in Judaism. We all agree with that. And yet for some reason, it's not translating to kids. Whereas a different magical system, there's something about it, but but it's more on the side of yes than God is or than Jewish practice is. And and where, is there a way to kind of do that better, I guess, is what I'm asking. I think kids are in charge of magic. I think kids are inventing magical systems. 
and they are observing the world around them and they are giving it meaning and they are encoding it and they are giving it language. And I think for most kids who believe in magic, there is some sense of control and power in magic. Judaism, for most kids in a Brit mitzvah class, there is not a huge sense of power and control or reimagining the world the way they want. What they feel is that they're being given a test and that they could fail it. And so in some ways, it's the opposite experience. And I think that's one of the things that I really want to, especially if I get a chance to talk to kids, like, I want to ask kids, like, what makes you feel powerful? How do you understand the world? And how can we put that in conversation? It's such a Jewish model. Like, how can we put that in conversation with the things that we traditionally place in this process? And I'm just very lucky to have found a synagogue here in Atlanta that gave my kids space and and sort of let them imagine my, my kid got up and when he gave his devar was basically like, I thought I was going to say a bunch of this stuff, but actually this isn't what I think. Like that that's, there's space for that in, I think in Judaism, there's just not always space for that in a given room or conversation or format. So this is a good moment, I think, for me to get to say that I'm pretty sure I believe in magic. Uh, now, the next <laughs> question when somebody says, they believe in magic is how are you defining magic? I'm not going to really do that, although I'm going to make an attempt. I'm going to I'm going to say the genre of magic I most believe in and that I actually have the privilege of like getting to do regularly. And I actually like do I call it magic when I'm doing it? Sometimes, not usually. I believe that people can say words and do actions and reality actually changes. I actually think that. Yes, agreed. I think uh, now I don't think that always happens. I don't think everybody saying every prayer in the prayer book is casting magic spells because I think a lot of people don't really believe them. I, my magic, I think you have to intend the magic for the magic to work. Maybe that's a form of me being cheaty to use mm -hmm. Zippy's word. But like when I facilitate a wedding ceremony and I meet with the couple and we together decide on ritual that's going to happen in those 25 30 minutes. I believe that the nature of those two people with respect to each other at 1 p.m. and 1.35 p.m., if the wedding was between 1 and 1.30, I actually think it's different. I actually yep. think we have done a set of things that change the world. And I don't think that's a metaphor. I don't think we've like done some things that symbolize change. I think we've done it. That feels important to say because we don't call that magic. When we say Correct. magic, we're thinking of, you know, pulling a rabbit out of nothingness. I also think that's cool. I, I love watching great <laughs> illusionists. Yeah. I, I'm I'm a big fan of like the prestige and some of those movies, whatever. But that's not what I think magic always has to mean. I think magic is the idea that as human beings, we have control to actually alter reality. I've said this on the podcast before. When people say four blessings on a Saturday night to transform Shabbat into not Shabbat, they're right. doing magic. They have actually shifted reality by Jewish law from Shabbat to not Shabbat. And if they don't say those words and do those actions, have, the, the Shabbat continues. It, yes, I 100% agree with you. Like that is every instinct that I have. And every person I know has a few moments in their life where something crazy happened. And they'll say like, I know this is going to sound like I'm making it up, but I swear this is true. Coincidence is magic. Serendipity is magic. Like there are just all sorts of things in the world that are too beautiful or too unusual or too unexpected to explain. My life begins with, I, I, so I have epilepsy 
And when I was a little girl, I would have these seizures, these waking seizures, these petty malls where I would see swirling colors or they would come in a dream when I was sleeping and nobody knew that they were there, right? I saw things nobody else could see. And then they would explain to me that those things weren't there, but I could see them. I, I feel like for me, that sort of set something up that like the things that you can see aren't necessarily real and the things that you can't see might be. And so we get like religion and science and magic and all of these things swirling together. And we have to live in the fabric of all those threads, right? Like we can call it science, we can call it religion, we can call it magic. If magic is, then Judaism has to interact with it. So a form of magic that this book is interested in is the transformation of somebody from pre-bat mitzvah to bat mitzvah. Uh, I mean, I, I mentioned wedding before, like th there's another version of that where through a process of learning or growth or experience and a set of rituals on a day. And on this show, we're really open to an expansive idea of what those rituals would be. We don't have, we don't have to be in a synagogue. In Zippy's case, it is in a synagogue, but like a person has become bat mitzvah. I'm not saying become mm -hmm. a woman, I felt a set of magical things at my own bar mitzvah. I did not feel that I had become a man. I do think I became some important new stages. I'm kind of wondering from your perspective, like, what is the magic of the bat mitzvah process? Like, for what, what is what is the transformation? And of course, part of the answer is that it would be different for every single individual mm -hmm. student or person going through it. By the way, we're... This could happen at 12 or 13. We've had other episodes in this series where we're exploring adults who do this at a later age. But like you're into ritual and you're into magic. What is the A to B journey? Like what what is the change that is happening with bat mitzvah? And I, I think I'm asking not just about Zippy, but how you conceptualize it generally. It's something I had to think really hard about because my son's bar mitzvah was canceled. So in March of 2020, I went to the Trader Joe's and I'm wandering around with my phone and I'm talking to my dad and I'm saying, well, there's this pandemic thing happening, but the bar mitzvah isn't until June. So, <laughs> and my dad said, Laurel, two to four years, you're not having a bar mitzvah. Like that's not happening. And then that's what happened, right? Like, of course we all know now, like the po it got postponed. I mean, the, and so this is the question. The essential question is the bar mitzvah wasn't postponed. The ceremony was postponed. The party was postponed. My son became bar mitzvah. And the question was, I mean, we, later we had a ceremony, later we had a party. My son became bar mitzvah because he turned 13. And we had a date on which we had expected to celebrate it and a Porsche for him to read. But if he hadn't done those things, he still became bar mitzvah as a young Jewish kid, right? So the question for me then was, how do we mark this moment? Like, what is our ritual in a world where we can be with nobody else? And then once we figure that out and did that thing, and we're like, all right, this is your bar mitzvah, you're going to have another one later for everybody else, but this is yours for you. Then the question became, well, what is the role of those other things? Once you separate the ceremony, because people will be like, it's not about the party, it's about the ceremony. And it's like, no, it's actually <laughs> not about the ceremony either. Like, that's a nice thing. But this moment happened in my son for my son, or it didn't. And it happened to a secondary degree for us, for me as his Jewish mother, who wanted to welcome him into this experience that I was part of. You know, and we got out my great grandfather's talus and we we like the, the rabbi offered to bring the scroll over here so we could just like have it for some time, you know, like, to hang out with. And I eventually I like rented an Airbnb with a swimming pool and a hot tub and ordered his favorite takeout. And we like hung out and swam. 
and lit the candles and put on a talis and that was his bar mitzvah. And but then it was like, well, now why are we doing the ceremony? Now why are we having the party? What are these things? And so I think on some level, it really clarified for me that the bar mitzvah was inside Lewis. Like that was his moment. And if he chooses to say he doesn't believe in God, that doesn't change it. And if he, we don't get around to reading his Parsha or saying any blessings, that also doesn't change it. He's going through an experience that on some level we can't access. But he's going through a transformation, if only because he's had this crazy experience of his bar mitzvah being canceled, and he's having to think about these things in a completely new way. You know, then later we had a game truck arrive and a caterer and a beautiful cake. I wonder whether some of this is particularly poignant because for a lot of Jews, they've experienced a kind of Jewish arrested development because formal Jewish experiences often end at the B mitzvah. And there are certain kinds of traumas, and that may be an over an overstatement of what it is, because I don't mean to be saying that everybody's, you know, suffering so terribly, but I mean, I feel like there's an element to which a lot of Jewish adults, their Judaism is based on something that happened in childhood. And that may have been a really good thing, but then it doesn't sort of continue in adulthood. It doesn't make the leap into adulthood. And so they feel a little bit, mm -hmm. they miss it and their Judaism is not satisfying. So it could be that even if it's a good childhood experience, it's still an issue that you struggle with as an adult. And then certainly for a lot of people, it's kind of a negative or difficult childhood experience for a variety of reasons, including that the thing itself isn't so great or like you were describing about your own childhood about being from a family that was not necessarily approved of at, at the time. And, and then you kind of feel like, so there's a lot of damage to be undone. It just feels like maybe more so than other walks of life, there is a lot of baggage being carried. And I don't only mean baggage in a bad way, but you're just carrying a lot of stuff sure. from childhood into your Jewish adulthood that maybe there's, there's some way in which uh, reading these books can help help you deal with. I've never thought about it quite that way before, and I'm going to be chewing on it now. But I have a related thing that I think a lot about, which is that most of the poetry and art that most people consume and remember, they consume before they become an adult. And this is because we feed kids art poetry. We say to them, you should be reading this. You want to consume this. We give them picture books that are full of art and poetry without telling them it's art and poetry, right? Like... And then you graduate into your job at the office and your fantasy football league or whatever your life looks like, you are much less likelier to gravitate toward art and poetry for their own sake. You may absorb it in other ways and other places. You go to a museum with, you know, on a tour or you, you know, whatever. But it's something I think a lot about that, like, we want things for our children that we then forget to want for ourselves. We ask our kids to have these meaningful, deep experiences and you see this in the book, like, you know, Zippy's dad doesn't want to drive her to Hebrew school. And so she doesn't go to Hebrew school. Like adult life is complicated and doesn't have a lot of space for anything that we understand to be extra in it. And uh, and for some reason, these are poetry, art, faith are things that don't always make the list once we outgrow childhood. So I'm shifting gears a little bit because you said something a little while ago, Laurel, that I I'm really interested in. You mentioned when you were talking about your son's bar mitzvah and how it was disrupted and how you had this sort of multiple stage situation where you went to the Airbnb and then you brought like the game track and all that good stuff. It poked at something in me that I feel called to 
voice, which is, I've heard a lot of rabbis and a lot of Jewish educators and whatever talk about how there's this huge problem. People have B-mitzvahs and they think it's about the party (laughs) and it's not about the ritual. I have reached my lifelong fill. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I'm I'm full. My stomach my appetite is is complete for that take in the world. I don't yeah. know that I will have children. But if I did and if I, you know nephews whatever nieces whatever it might be like if there were a B mitzvah coming up, I would want them to have a big fun party yeah. in the dream world. Would it tie to something Jewish? Sure. My bar mitzvah party, I was really nervous because all of the other, the, I grew up in Wisconsin. There were not that many B mitzvahs. And I went to a school where there were very few Jews. All the other ones, their parties, they had DJs. And mine, we had a klezmer band. Uh-huh. And I was very nervous that people were going to come and they're yeah. gonna be like, what's the deal? What's this klezmer band? And People loved it. I can I can report happily that the Lutheran children of Southeast Wisconsin <laughs> loved hanging out and dancing to klezmer music at Mequon Country Club in 2003. <laughs> they had a great time. And, you know, it doesn't need to be klezmer. I'd be fine with a DJ. But what I'm getting at is there are ways that we should understand the party as part of the ritual, as Torah. That's not to say that we need, you know, an extension of the Devar Torah. Like, that's not what I mean. I mean... When we have big events, we celebrate. I imagine when people went to the temple sacrifices 2,500 years ago, there were priests that were like, you know, the ritual is what's happening up here on the altar when we're sacrificing the animals. Most of the people were probably out there in the crowd schmoozing with each other with the thousands of people that had made pilgrimage. That was part of the point. And so I guess I'm curious to hear, like, maybe if you have fun stories about that game track. But like, what's what's the magic (laughs) of the party in addition to the ritual? So, I mean, 100% everything you're saying, like, first of all, like, if, if food wasn't sacred, we wouldn't make Kiddush. And if getting together with other people wasn't sacred, we wouldn't make Minion, right? Like, that, like these things are just in the, in the system already. But also, I just want to say, like, we bring the meaning to things. If you love soccer and you have a soccer party for your bar mitzvah, that's not going to be meaningful for me, but it is for somebody, right? Like... So we had this amazingly magical moment. We at the very, very last minute, after all the pivoting and rescheduling for Lewis's bar mitzvah, everybody was vaccinated. We had talked to all the grandparents. We decided we could have an indoor party and we booked a place in the neighborhood. And at the very last minute, I was like, I can't do this. I can't, I can't put our grandparents in a closed room. I, I, like it won't, like it won't feel Jewish. It won't feel safe. And we canceled at the very last minute and we rented a tent and a bunch of folding chairs and moved it to our yard. There was this very magical moment, you know, and we did, we like rented this game truck that like rolled up and the kids played video games in the game truck and everybody ran around and it was very much a collective effort. My friend Jenny, who isn't Jewish and so didn't know, she asked me what his portion was about and I told her and so she made a cake that looked like the tabernacle, which is incredible. (laughs) And if anybody wants to see it, go to my Instagram feed. It's incredible. But like just that, like that to me is magic that like my non-Jewish friend wants to participate in this in a meaningful way and builds him a fondant tabernacle, like so there was just a lot of that kind of magic going on. But then at the very last minute, she brought the cake out and it was nowhere near his birthday. It wasn't a birthday party, right? But she brings the cake out. And I looked around at all of these. There were like 150 people in the yard because once we knew we were having it outside, we just told everybody we knew, just come on over for dinner. I looked around and I realized this is 150 people who didn't have a birthday party last year. And so we ended up having this moment where we all sang happy birthday to everyone. 
And it was, it really did it with that tingly, you know, like shivery feeling of like realizing we just made a ritual that no one's ever made before because none of us have ever lived through a moment like this before. And everybody has missed so many things. Let's acknowledge that in this moment. And it really did to me feel like that was that, that to me, not to Lewis, but to me, that was the bar mitzvah moment. So first off, I, I do have a closing question, but my main thought is tabernacle cake is the greatest thing that's ever happened to Judaism. <laughs> I would like there to be tabernacle cakes that sweep the nation and the world and ideally other planets. Uh, we're going to put in the show notes on our website a link to the image of the tabernacle cake. <laughs> cool. Shouts to Jenny for being the latest in a long line of non-Jews to create something that should spread like wildfire and be Jewish for the for the foreseeable and not foreseeable future. Also, like the tabernacle is supposed to be a temporary structure and it, so it's eaten. And then yeah, it's right. right. Tabernacle. Oh, like, <laughs> wow. So, so you should have a cake that lasts for 40 years uh, and then no longer lasts. Oh That's it's, it's just like the tabernacle in the well, desert. Jenny, Jenny might be arrested by the, uh, you know, Food and Drug Administration. There are actually some sticks of gilded chocolate that are still in my freezer because my son refused to let it go. See, that's <laughs> they, amazing. They may live in the freezer 40 years. That's spectacular. I mean, and by the way, uh, it's not that a Jew couldn't have come up with that idea, but I do think it's worth saying, like, there's something that fe- I can't articulate why. It feels more likely to me that somebody who is an outsider to Jewish tradition and doesn't know that much about what's going on would think to ask like, oh, what's what's going on? I'm going to turn it into a cake. Because if you were Jewish, you'd be like, oh, tabernacle cake? Is that respectful? Can I do right, that? Right, exactly. And yep. I mean, you might not think that consciously, but okay, putting that aside, I have a closing question. It's the difference between can I and should I, right? Yeah. And so putting that aside, I have a, a closing question that is not about tabernacle cake, but if you have more to say, bring it in. I believe and. I think this pretty strongly, that we misunderstand Jewish leadership today. We think that the people who are primarily molding Judaism right now, descriptively and prescriptively, we think that they're rabbis and Jewish educators and cantors and podcast hosts like us that have Judaism in the name. Like We, we think that it's a set of people who are like placed in roles of Jewish X, Jewish authority, fill it in. Mm-hmm. I believe that the people who have as much power as those folks in shaping Judaism are often creators of fiction that is deeply Jewish in nature. Like when you write a book like this, it's not just that you're writing a book that is tied to or about Judaism. It's a book that has the potential to itself be Judaism and to change the way that Judaism is experienced by its participants. And that's so powerful. And I, it's not just fiction writers. It's also screenwriters and people who create visual like films and television shows that are themselves forms of Jewish art that can change what Judaism is. Like, there's a bunch of like popular facing people, authors, mm-hmm. writers, artists, film producers, whatever, who actually are playing a huge role in making decisions about what Judaism is, which pieces about Judaism are most known, which pieces are less known, all of that. So I guess as a closing thought, I'm curious how you understand the role of of Jewish fiction writers in shaping Judaism moving forward. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I was just writing this piece because I've been thinking about all these things, about the the book that was the first book that felt like my Jewish book, right? All of a Kind Family wasn't, and Zlata the Goat wasn't. And I loved those books, but to me, they were exotica, right? They were a kind of Judaism I couldn't reach for. 
They were so, this is what Judaism is. So the things that say, this is what Judaism is, right? Like I love Fiddler on the Roof, but if that's what it is to be a Jew, I'm not. And if all of our models are old and all of our models sort of resemble each other, it makes it really, really hard for people to innovate or find their place in Judaism who maybe sit outside that. Um, but the book that, interestingly, the, to me, interestingly, the book that was really disruptive and useful for me was Davida's Harp by Chaim Potok, which is maybe not the Chaim Potok book that most people have read. Davida is a young girl. She's like 12 years old. And her mother's a Jewish communist and her father's, I forget, Presbyterian or something. And it was the very first time I ever saw intermarriage depicted. But I would argue like Chaim Potok's pretty institutional, right? Like, I guess what I want to say is everybody has to be involved. I wouldn't feel like I had the authority to write this book if Natalie Blitt, who lives in a much more traditional normative Jewish world than I do, my friend Natalie Blitt, she's a Jewish author herself. But if Natalie Blitt, who happens to be married to a rabbi, wasn't willing to read for me, I don't think I could write the book confidently that I did. And still, I mean, I got to tell you, I'm still struggling with this stuff. We had a big formatting issue with the book and the Hebrew in it got all flipped around. And now in the final version, there's also an issue. My imposter syndrome flares so big that like I should have caught it. But of course, I didn't catch it. That is not my area of expertise. So I guess I just feel like we need both. We need real relationships between like I used to go sit on a cold lunch and learn. No, I am not your average Orthodox lunch and learn girl, but like, I really want more conversations between all these different parts of the Jewish community. I feel like what we can do as artists, what we can do as sort of not official Jewish leaders, but Jewish leaders is just really strengthened by support and encouragement from the normative or institutional Jewish community. I see the strongest things happening when there is buy-in from the Jewish world without trying to co-opt it, without trying to restrict it, but simply saying, like, what you're doing is interesting. It's not what we do, but can I help? Thank you so much, Laurel Snyder, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's, uh, this is the goal, these conversations, right? That's the whole point. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's a great point to end on these conversations, not just ours, but generally conversations about what we want the Jewish world to look like. That is the goal. And if you enjoy them, you should come to Shavuot Live, our 24 consecutive hour event marking the Festival of Shavuot, where we have lots of conversations all about what Judaism is and can be in the future. And uh, you can register for it at judaismunbound.com slash Shavuot. That's judaismunbound.com slash S-H-A-V-U-O-T. So head there, click the button that says register, and you'll get all the info you need to attend. May 26th to 27th, starting and ending at noon, 24 hours consecutively. Come for one hour, come for 24, come for some amount in the middle, whatever works. Um, We also want to close out this episode, of course, by encouraging all of you out there to be in touch with us with any questions that arose from this episode, ideas, visions, comments, whatever you've got. You can be in touch via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of our handles are at Judaism Unbound. You can send us an email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. And you can check out the show notes on our website at judaismunbound.com slash podcast for this episode and for all of our other recent episodes and not so recent episodes. And the last request we like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way, which you can do on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift via judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.